please take your Bibles. Turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, starting in Matthew chapter 24 this morning. We are coming to a passage in which Jesus is teaching about the end, what is going to take place when the end does come. We all know that the life that we have right now is not forever. You know, there's the, the, the well-known statement, there are only two things that are certain in this world. What are those two things? Death and taxes. Well, April 15th is just around the corner, so one of those is coming. The other, we don't know when. But one thing we do know for certain is what Scripture tells us is that each of us have one life to live and then the end comes for us. Well, someone gave me a, an article just recently about William Shatner. Everybody knows who William Shatner is. He's, he's Captain Kirk on Star Trek. And no matter how old you are, whether you're young or old, you know Star Trek and you know Captain Kirk. Uh, and I remember as I was growing up, anytime someone would learn what my name is, they would always say, Beam me up, Scotty. Because everybody knew Star Trek. So when you greet me as we go out, don't say, beam me up, Scotty. I know some of you will. But William Shatner, in this article, was reflecting on his own mortality. You know, he's about 83 years old right now. Uh, And so he he was sharing some of his thoughts about life. So as he approaches the end, he said, there's a sense of not being fulfilled. I don't know what it is, but it bothers me. I'm so not ready to die. It petrifies me. I go alone. I go to a place I don't know. It might be painful. It might be the end. My thought is that it is the end. I become nameless. I spent my lifetime being known. I become nameless. You know, I've always had sort of an ironic view of life. My belief system is that when this is over, it's over. You don't look down from heaven and wait for your loved ones to join you. Now, there may be some soul activity, but I'm not sure. What I am sure about is that your molecules continue, and in due time, you become something else. That's science. When asked about his religious beliefs about an afterlife, he said, no, I I don't. I don't believe in that. Emotionally, I would like to believe that there's life after death, but intellectually, I cannot accept the idea. As for myself, I have finally come to the conclusion that life is here and now and nothing more. Well, William Shatner has gotten one thing right, is that there is coming an end. That this life will not continue forever. As we all know, there is a coming a time where our lives that we live right now will not go on. And really, that's the whole point of everything that we're seeing in this section of the Gospel of Matthew. It's what's commonly known as the Olivet Discourse, in which Jesus gathers with his disciples, and he teaches them, and he shares with them what is going to happen as the end approaches. We're going to eventually get into the end of Matthew 25, but I want us to start in Matthew chapter 24 so we can see where Jesus is going in this, these two chapters, because they all fit together in what Jesus is saying. Jesus has been with the disciples And he's been with them in the temple. And as he's getting ready to leave the temple, and they're walking away from the temple complex, he tells his disciples to look back. To look back at the temple that's there. And in verse 2 of chapter 24, this is what he says. 
Do you not see all these things? Everything back here in the temple. Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Now, when we hear that, we tend to glance over it. We tend not to think a whole lot about that passage because we've heard it before. Uh, We may have studied it before, and just the thought of a, a temple not being there anymore isn't a big deal to us. But when the disciples looked back at this temple, and they heard Jesus saying this, it would have rocked their world. They wouldn't have been able to believe that this would possibly happen. You see, the temple complex that Jesus was pointing back to and looking at was something about the size of of 20 to 25 football fields. We're talking about a massive complex that took years and years to be built. Uh, Some of the disciples probably been seeing this being built all through their life. And they'd seen these massive stones going up and and being built up. Uh, There are some of the stones that were used that were about 500 tons, about 40 feet long, 12 feet high, 12 feet wide. Absolutely just massive stones that were being used to build this, place, to build this thing. Some of, the, some of the stones were 80, 100 tons in weight, but 100 feet up above the foundation. And, and so they're looking back at this, this massive thing that they, they think of as this amazing structure, and they look back and they say, how in the world could that be? Well, Jesus is, is here prophesying something that's going to come in the future. He's telling them about the time that the Roman army is going to come in to Jerusalem. They're going to come in and they're going to wipe out many of the Jews. Thousands of them will be killed and they're going to tear down this temple complex. 70 AD, this is, this is what happens. So Jesus is, is pointing forward to the future when this, this time is going to come in which the Roman army is going to come in and wipe out many of the people. And so what Jesus does from that point is he uses this as kind of a launching point. A launching point then to begin moving into discussing with them about the end. Not just the end of the temple complex, but the time that, that he will return and that he'll bring all things to an end. And so all of chapter 24, all of chapter five, 25 are dealing with this subject of the end. And, and just so Jesus doesn't confuse the disciples, so they don't think that he's giving them some kind of pinpointed time, he says, I will come like a thief in the night. That's kind of an unusual image to think about Jesus being described as a thief coming in the night. But what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing to them to understand that that he will come back at a time that they are not expecting. There will be a time when we are not expecting that Jesus will come back. And this image of him as a thief coming in the night is one that's used all through the New Testament. There are several different times in which the writers of the New Testament talk about Jesus coming as a thief. First Thessalonians, Paul says it. Peter says it in 2 Peter. John says it in Revelation. Over and over again, this image that Christ is going to come at a time which we do not expect. So the whole point of this passage, and the point of us talking about this this morning, is not for us to figure out a date. It's not for us to figure out a time when we can look and figure out some signs and say, this is the time that Jesus is coming back. Instead, what Jesus is doing here is he is pointing the disciples to the truth that he is coming back so that they will be ready in the day that he does return. And it's for us now so that we will be ready on the day that he returns. That's why he gives these different parables in chapter 25. If you want to flip over to chapter 25, you can see a little bit of what I'm talking about there. 
What's the first parable that's listed there? The parable of the ten virgins, right? This is a parable that you've, that you've heard before. There are these, these ten young women who are invited to a wedding banquet. Five of them are ready for it. They have the oil for their lamps ready. They are prepared for it. They're waiting. Five of them are not ready. Five of them are not prepared for it. And so when the bridegroom comes, five of them are left outside because they weren't ready for the time when the bridegroom came back. And so Jesus' point here is clear to us. Be ready. Persevere into the end, to the end when he will come back. Be ready for that time. The next parable that we see here is parable of the, of the ten talents, or parable of the talents. This is one that, that we've heard before and know about. There's a master who is going on a journey. And so he gathers his servants together, and he gives each one of them a, a different amount of money. A talent is, is a unit of money, a, a huge amount of money, actually. And he gives them this amount of money based on their ability and says that he'll return at a later time. And so you know how this goes. One has five and goes and, and earns more. One has ten, goes and, and earns more. One has one and buries it in the ground and, and gets nothing in return. Well, Jesus is making a point here. The master will come back one day, and during that time, his servants are to be diligent in the work that they're to be doing. They're to be anticipating the return of the master, serving so that when, they are, when the master comes back, they'll be able to look at him and say, this is what I have been doing. This is how I've been serving you in the time that you were gone. And so Jesus has been speaking to his disciples in, in somewhat a little bit coded language, in which he's been saying parables, these stories to describe his final return. But now we come to the end of chapter 25. This is a, this is a passage we're going to deal with today. Jesus doesn't speak in parables anymore. There's no more coded language about what is going to happen. He speaks directly to his disciples that they will understand this day is coming. This is going to happen. So pick up with me, Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord as Jesus speaks to his disciples, telling them what to expect, what to anticipate in the time that he comes back Matthew 25, 31, hear the word of the Lord. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me. And naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me. And naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? 
Then he'll answer them, truly I say to you, the extent that you did, did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. William Shatner absolutely got one thing right. There is coming a time in which, in which all things will be brought to an end. There is coming a time in which our lives will end. You see, we will, we will all come to this day in one of two ways. Either our days on this earth will end, and we will die, or we will continue to live and Christ will come back. One of those two ways, each of us will stand at this point that Jesus is describing. Either the days that God has numbered for us here on this earth, the hours that we have, whether that is today or a hundred years from now, either those days will end for us, or Christ will come back. He will come so that all the world sees. He will split open the sky, coming on the clouds, so that his glory is seen to all the world. And that all the world sees that the sun has come back. And if God tarries and we are allowed to live that long, then we will be able to see Christ coming that we might all see the glory of the Son of God as he returns. So one of two ways we will see Christ at this day. The problem is is that many will wish that it's just the end and that nothing comes after that. You see, the thing that Jesus is telling his disciples here and he's telling us today is that an end is coming when our lives will be over, that Christ will come back, but that is not the end of everything because there is coming a point after the end in which Jesus will stand as judge, in which there will be a judgment that we all stand before. This is, this is the picture that we're getting here. Look at the passage. You see how, how Jesus comes back and has how he gathers before him the nations, and he sits upon the throne. Listen to this again. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. All the nations will be gathered for Christ at this time. For those who are alive at this time, they will be immediately in in the presence of the Savior. For those who have died, they will be resurrected. And so that all the nations, every tribe, tongue, nation, people, everybody who has ever lived will stand before the throne of Christ. And this isn't just Christ's throne as the Lord reigning over all things. This is Christ sitting on his throne as the Lord and as the judge who will judge the quick and the dead all before his throne. And Jesus says what he'll do at this point is he'll take the sheep and the goats and separate them as a shepherd does. You see, a shepherd may have multiple animals together in a flock. A shepherd may have sheep together and goats together, but when it comes time to sell the goats, he'll separate them out so that he have, has the goats in one place and the sheep on another so that he can take the, the goats and he can sell them or slaughter them for his own purposes. Jesus says there's coming a time in which he will separate the believers from the unbelievers. Those who know him to his right, those who do not know him brought to his left. Listen to verse 34. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For those who are his sheep, who are placed on his right hand, they go to an internal inheritance with Christ. This is a picture that we get in in all through the New Testament, that there is a, a hope, a joy that awaits those who know Christ. Scripture speaks of a time that's coming in which there will be no more death. There's a time coming in which there will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more pain that his followers will ever experience. The glory of the Lord will shine forth as the light of heaven, and those who belong to him will be in his presence for all of time, crying out to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This is the eternal inheritance. This is the eternal hope that you and I have if we are in Christ. Is there anything greater than that? Is there anything more joyous and exciting than the possibility that you and I may stand before God forever in his presence, sing the praises of the one who has bought us? This is our eternal hope. This is, this is what I want. This is what I long for. The day where I will be in his presence. If you know Christ, this is the hope that you have. But for those who are separated from Christ on the left, those who are the goats, they do not have this hope. Jesus describes their eternal destiny in a very different way. Listen to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment. The point here is that those who have not placed their hope in Christ go to an eternal home away from Christ. And the way that Scripture speaks of the eternal destiny of those outside of Christ is perhaps more than our imagination can really comprehend. Scripture speaks about hell in in ways that words cannot fully describe. Jesus refers to it as an unquenchable fire in Mark 9. He calls it a place where a worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man goes to hell and while he is there, he asks for just a little relief. If somebody might come and dip their finger in water and then touch that finger to his lips, that he'll have just a taste of relief. Revelation says that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Day and night, they do not have any rest. The depiction that we get in Scripture for those who are outside of Christ, for those who reject God, is a picture that goes beyond words. See, the reality of of hell that we're dealing with here is, is not a product of a capricious, vindictive God. This isn't God saying, what can I think of that's going to be the worst possible thing for people to experience? This is the result of an absolutely holy, righteous God. This is what is deserved for those of us who reject who he is. 
who look at a holy and righteous God and say, I do not want him. I want my own way. And so the the destiny that waits those who reject the perfect Savior, who look at God and say, I do not want that, is this what Scripture describes. And I I know in our, our modern day, we don't like to think of hell in these kinds of terms. It's not very modern of us to, to use this kind of language that somebody will experience these kinds of things. Uh, instead, we, we think about, we talk about hell as being a, a place where our friends are too. Or place, uh, hell is a, a place where, where Satan reigns. It's, it's kind of his home, his place. Or, or hell is really just a construct of our own minds. It, it, it's just something that we have thought of that's not really the case. Many of you have, have heard of Jonathan Edwards and, and the famous sermon that he gave of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Something that's common. We read it in school. And, and Edwards used these images that today we look at and think, well, how could he, how could he say those kinds of things? He, he talked about those who are on their way to hell as being like a spider that is held over a flame. And it's just a matter of time before they drop into the flames. He talked about Satan as a, as a serpent who has jaws yawning open wide to, to reach out and snatch those that he might bring them into the depths of hell. He talked about the, the wrath of God pouring out on people, God's wrath being like a bow that's bent, bent back and, and will eventually be let loose to fire at those who do not know him. We hear language like this, and we think, is that really right? We think, is that, is that something that just a preacher 300 years ago used? I'm of the conviction that the language that he describes there, the picture that we see in Scripture, these images, are only a hint of the depth of the despair and the torment that comes from those outside of Christ. It's a horrible, horrible picture of what awaits those who are outside of Christ. Each of us will stand at this place in Matthew 25. This will be each of us one day. At this point, Jesus will look. He'll separate the separate the, the sheep from the goats. And then he will look at each one and lay out the evidence. And the evidence will be clear. Those who are his, those who are not his. Now this is where it gets a little surprising for us. We read through this and, and we see there's going to be a judgment. Christ is going to separate, separate the sheep from the goats. We know these things. But then the, the things that Jesus describes next are a little bit surprising to us. As he lays out the evidence, here's here's how I know that you're a sheep. Here's how I know that you're a goat. What's the evidence that he lays out for them? Listen to this again. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. Verse 35, I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And the righteous are, are wondering, how... How can this be? I, I don't ever remember seeing you 
naked and clothing you. I don't remember seeing you hungry and then feeding you. I don't remember any of these times that you're talking about. Well, Jesus is getting to a point here. He's showing them that how they care for one another is evidence for whether they are truly his. Look what, what Jesus describes this as. He's talking about when you've done, any, done these things to the least of these, my brothers. Who are the brothers? Aren't they Christ's children? Aren't they believers? We're not talking about just people in general here. Jesus is speaking about those who know him. And he says, for the, the times that you have done this, to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And for the goats, the times that you did not do these, to the least of these, are evidence that you never have encountered me. So here's the truth that we see written all over the New Testament. One of the clearest evidences that a person is a believer is how they are connected to, love, and care for fellow believers. It's written all over the New Testament. John 13, Jesus says, A new command I give you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. By how you what? How you love one another. John, uh, 1 John chapter 4 says, Beloved, let us also love one another. All these things are the evidence for how we know that we are truly believers. 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 3, but whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth. How do we know that we are truly his? Jesus says those who are truly his will have their lives so vitally connected to fellow believers that they will be actively serving, actively engaged in caring for and meeting the needs of their fellow believers. Those who are outside of Christ will be the ones who, who have not done those things. Now, when we come to this, we need to be careful. We need to be careful about approaching this text because Jesus is not saying that these things that you do are what gets you into heaven. Jesus is not saying that doing these things is what saves you. No, what saves us, what brings us to salvation is grace through faith. By God's grace he opens our eyes, shows us the truth of Christ. We turn from our sins. We look unto Christ and say, I do not want my sin anymore. I turn from that. I want you. That is salvation by grace through faith. What he is saying here is that how you can know that you are his. The evidence that you can look for in your life for whether you are truly Christ is how you love and care for and meet the needs of those who are Christ. This is the evidence that he cites here. Now, that seems a little odd to us. This isn't what we would expect. If, if we're standing before Christ and he is laying out the case, he's standing there as judge, we wouldn't expect him to offer this as the evidence for whether someone is a true believer or not. Wouldn't we expect something different? We, we, would, we would expect, yes, you 
you sacrificed everything for me. It, it's clear. Or, or we would expect something like, like, you laid down your life for the gospel. Or, or you were one who was characterized by constantly proclaiming your faith. Or, or you served in these number of different ways. Those are the kinds of things that, w- that we might expect. But instead, Jesus goes straight to how we love, how we care for one another. Because the mark of a true believer is that one who knows Christ will absolutely love and care for their fellow believers. You will love your brothers in Christ. You will love your sisters in Christ. And you will be so desiring to care for them that you will go out of your way to serve those who are Christ. This is the evidence of whether we are truly his or not. So this morning, I want to leave you with two questions. Two questions that that I want each of us to ask ourselves. Question number one, when you stand before the Lord, where will you go? We will all come to that time. When you stand before the throne, which side will you be on? You know, I, have, I have no doubt in, in a room this size that there are a number in here who have never turned to Christ. I have no doubt that within this body right here, there are some who have never looked to him as Savior. You've lived for yourself. You have sought your way rather than God's way. You have not been concerned about the things of God, or have you said that that, that is for a different time? Or you've looked at it and said, I I don't think those things are true. Or it's never even been a concern to you. The reality is is that each one of us will face this day. And so if if that is you, this morning I plead with you. I plead with you to turn to the one who can give you salvation. Turn to the one who will look at you and say, yes, I forgive you. Turn to the one who has died for your sin, who has taken it all upon the cross, who has raised from life, who has now gone to be with the Father. Turn to him, and Scripture says that he will hear you. Call out to him. Do not look at your life and say, I will wait. Do not look at your life and say, maybe some other time. Don't look at your life and say, this isn't for me. Understand that you will stand before him one day. Call to the one who can give you life eternal. But at the same time, I recognize that there, in a a building this size, that there are possibly some folks in here who have been thinking everything is okay. But perhaps it's not. I heard a story recently about a a man who, when he was nine years old, had a particular experience. He he grew up in a very religious family, very, it was a very good family, you know, strong Southern Baptist family, church every day. And so when he got to be nine years old, his mom looked at him and said, you know, it's time. You're you're nine years old now. It's time for you to get saved. And so he, he did what he thought he was supposed to. He one day at the end of the service, he walked down the aisle, talked to the preacher, filled out a card, was baptized, and then went on about his life. 
until about seven years later, by God's grace, God opened his eyes to see. That time, all he did was really go through the motions. He just signed a card and talked to a pastor, but he had never really encountered Christ. In our Bible Belt culture, it's a possibility that some of you sitting in here now at one time went through some motions. You, you went through some experience, but you've never truly encountered Christ. If that is you, I don't care how old you are, whether you're 10 or you're 100, call out to the one who can save you, and he will hear you. So question number one, where will you go on that day? Question number two is about the evidence that we talked about. Is your life characterized by being vitally connected to and caring for fellow believers? Is your life characterized by being connected to, vitally connected to, and caring for other believers? Jesus said this is one of the distinguishing marks of his followers. But in our fragmented, individualistic society today, this isn't something that's normal for us. Instead, what's more normal for us is to have our lives just tangentially connected to one another. Now, I know that there are some math teachers in here, and so just, if you are, block out what I'm getting ready to say. I don't like math. Not at all. Never have. But I do remember a few things that I learned in math. One of the things that I learned is something called a tangent. A tangent is a, is a line that just touches a circle or a curved line in just one point. Just, just barely touches it. I'm afraid that, that some in here may fall into that category. Your lives just barely connect. Barely connect to the body. But the picture of a believer is not somebody who just touches the body, connects at one point, but a group of believers whose lives are constantly intersecting one another, constantly involved in one another's lives, constantly meeting needs and caring for one another and being together. This is the picture of what it means to be in Christ, that we are in Christ together and we are serving together and we are working together and we are loving together, suffering together at times. So how is your life characterized when it comes to loving and caring for and being intimately involved, vitally related to the body, serving? Are you just, just a little connected? Or is your life interwoven into the fabric of other believers? Jesus tells us there's coming a day. There's coming a day when he will come back. Where will you go that day? And what is the evidence in regard to how you are connected and serving believers? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have allowed us to study it. Thank you, God, that we have been given the truth that Christ has come. This morning, I, I pray that if any in here does not know you, God, that you will grip their hearts, that you will bring them to salvation. Show them the truth 
of Christ. And God, for those of us who may just be, have our lives just a little bit connected, barely touching, barely serving one another, God, I pray that you will change our attitudes toward that. Connect us together, unite us together, serving one another, serving for the purpose of your kingdom. God, we, we pray and plead for this in Christ's name. Amen.